Welcome to Music History Monday for April 3rd, 2023. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is The Death of Johannes Brahms. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the death on April 3, 1897, 126 years ago today, of the German composer and pianist Johannes Brahms at the age of 63. One of the great ones, and along with Sebastian Bach and Louis van Beethoven, one of the three Bs, the killer Bs. Brahms was born in the Hanseatic port city of Hamburg, on May 7, 1833. We will get to Maestro Brahms in just a moment, but first, with appropriate fanfare, I offer up this edition of This Day in Music History Stupid. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, be kind of my ashes, though snort, if you must. On April 3rd, 2007, 16 years ago today, the Reuters news agency reported that Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards, born December 18, 1943, admitted in a soon-to-be-published interview with NME, New Musical Express magazine, that he had snorted his father's ashes during a drug binge. I think we've all wondered the same thing at some point or another. Given his personal habits and corpse-like appearance, how and why is Keith Richards still alive, yet still performing at nearly 80 years of age? Richards would seem to be as surprised as we are that he is still among the living. For decades, he has expressed his dubious pride at having survived his legendary lifestyle. Back in his 60s, Richards told an interviewer, quote, I was number one on the who's likely to die list for 10 years. I mean, I was really disappointed when I fell off the list. Some doctor told me I had six months to live, and I went to his funeral, unquote. According to an NME magazine spokesperson, the interview in which Richards claimed to have snorted his father's ashes was genuine and not a late April Fool's joke. During that interview, Richards was asked what was the strangest thing he ever snorted. His response, quote, The strangest thing I've tried to snort? My father. I snorted my father. He was cremated, and I couldn't resist grinding him up with a little bit of blow. My dad wouldn't have cared. It went down pretty well, and I'm still alive." Unquote. For our information, Keith Richards' father, Bert Richards, died in 2002 at the age of 84. Will his son Keith outlive him? On this, we'll simply have to wait and see. Johannes Brahms, approaching 60. Johannes Brahms in his late 50s 
was a picture of ruddy good health. His schedule remained fixed. Vacation in Italy during the early spring, compose in the countryside during the late spring and summer, return to Vienna in the fall to polish what he had written during the summer, conduct, or simply loaf around as he pleased. Despite his bulky physique, Brahms remained quite spry, and despite the countless cigars and the gallons of beer and wine he consumed, he remained a picture of health. While in Vienna, he dined religiously, lunch and dinner, at the Zum Roten Igel, the Red Hedgehog, in the Wildpretmarkt. As far as he was concerned, the hedgehog served the best cheap food in Vienna, a double positive if there ever was one, something he never tired of telling his less frugal friends and associates. What Brahms did spend his money on were the Viennese ladies of the evening, with whom, we are told, he was kindly, caring, and generous, sometimes to a fault. Of the older Brahms, writes biographer Jan Swafford, quote, in his fashion, Brahms remained modest and generous and often self-deprecating, but he did not escape the effects of fame. In his age, he could not abide being contradicted, took for granted that he was the center of every opportunity. He maintained his chosen masks, the master to be approached at peril, the gruff, hard-drinking bourgeois man preferring the company of men, or in mixed company telling naughty stories to the ladies. He played the old scamp, the old rogue, flirting with every pretty face and everyone's daughter. But he looked and did not touch beyond the playful squeeze, laughed and held forth and gave lavish gifts, but in the end gave nothing of himself beyond his art. Ruthlessly, he had sunk his fair features and moonstruck young soul under the patriarchal beard and forbidding bark of Herr Dr. Brahms." Unquote. By the late 1880s and early 1890s, the awards, laurels, and prizes began to pour into Brahms's Viennese flat, unbidden, but certainly not unwelcome. Brahms kept the lid on his grand piano down, and instead of the usual family photographs, he covered the piano with a rotating display of his medals and certificates. By far the most welcome honor to come his way arrived in May 1889. Brahms was informed that his hometown of Hamburg was to award him the Freedom of Hamburg Prize, the city's greatest honor. Only 12 people had ever received the prize, the most recent being Otto von Bismarck and the Prussian general Helmut von Moltke. Johannes Brahms and Clara Schumann approaching the end. From the age of 20 to his death, Brahms's life was inextricably linked with that of the pianist Clara Wieck Schumann, 1819 to 1896. As such, in discussing the end of Brahms's life, it is impossible not to discuss the end of Clara Schumann's life as well. 
It was during the late 1880s and the early 1890s that Brahms, aware of his place in music history, became increasingly concerned, terrified would not be too strong a word, that future generations would know more about him than he wanted them to know. With that fear in mind, Brahms decided to do his best to spin the future's memory of him. To that end, he began to recall from his friends letters he had written to them over the years. In no case was this more gut-wrenching than it was with his oldest and most intimate friend, Clara Schumann. At first, a distraught Clara agreed to return Brahms's letters. But having thought about it, and much to Brahms's anger, Clara then refused because she knew he intended to destroy the letters once she returned them. Brahms browbeat Clara relentlessly over the letters. Finally yielding, she begged Brahms to let her save just a few, but Brahms refused. Heartbroken, she returned them, and this amazing, unique correspondence, a veritable four-decade eyewitness history of Europe and European music, was, just like that, consigned to the flames in Brahms's kitchen stove. Clara, in her 70s, was not a pretty sight. Life and grief and her own depressive personality had ravaged her. Her hearing was very bad. As a result of her neuralgia, defined as acute paroxysmal pain radiating along the course of one or more nerves, she could no longer play the piano for more than just a few minutes at a time. Nevertheless, Johannes Brahms still loved Clara Schumann. He loved her as a woman, but even more, he idolized her as an earth mother, as the goddess of music. He loved her as the wife of his friend and benefactor, Robert Schumann. He loved her for her suffering, and oh my goodness, Clara did suffer, and her perseverance in the face of her suffering. For all the ups and downs in their relationship, they wrote each other religiously and rarely went more than a few weeks without seeing each other. Brahms was, in many ways, a surrogate father to Clara's seven children. He was almost certainly in love with one of them, Clara's daughter Julie, 1845 to 1872. But Brahms could never and would never declare his love for Julie, first because he was Brahms, and secondly because in Brahms's mind it would have been tantamount to incest. Woody Allen, he was not. Brahms suffered deeply from the illnesses and deaths of Clara's children. Julie Schumann, Brahms's great crush, died in 1872 at the age of 27. Clara's youngest child, Felix Schumann, 1854 to 1879, was a favorite of Brahms's, and Felix's slow wasting away from tuberculosis broke his heart. In 1874, in regard to Felix's declining health, Brahms wrote Clara, quote, I feel your pain and anxiety much too deeply to be able to express it to you in words, for I am so thoroughly accustomed to endure even my own suffering in secret and without making a sign. Let this deep love of mine 
be a comfort to you, for I love you more than myself and more than anybody or anything on earth." Unquote. Moments of revelatory honesty like that aside, Clara never did figure Johannes out. On May 7, 1880, Clara played Brahms's then brand new Opus 79 Rhapsodies for solo piano for a house full of guests who included Brahms himself and the young Max Kalbeck, who would become Brahms's first biographer. Brahms was in one of his foul, nasty moods. Clara asked Kalbeck if he knew what Brahms was upset about. Kalbeck had no idea. According to Kalbeck, Clara's eyes suddenly filled with tears, and she told him, quote, Would you believe that in spite of our long and intimate friendship, Johannes has never told me anything about what excites or upsets him? He is just as much of a riddle, I could almost say as much of a stranger, as he was to me 25 years ago." Unquote. Johannes Brahms and Clara Schumann loved and tortured each other for nearly 43 years. Call it what you will, Johannes and Clara's relationship, unusual, codependent, whatever, it was unique in the history of music. And whatever you want to call it, it was the one true emotional anchor in Brahms's life. For all Clara's endless suffering, her moaning and groaning and sobbing and weeping, and flashes of white-hot anger at Brahms's not infrequent and titanic insensitivity, Brahms could not live in a world without her, and he knew it. The news came to Brahms by telegram on May 20th, 1896, from Clara's eldest daughter, Marie. Quote, Our mother fell gently asleep today. Unquote. Clara, who had suffered a slight stroke on March 26th, 1896, had suffered a second devastating stroke on May 16th. She lingered for four days, and then died. Brahms was physically incapable of taking part in Clara's funeral procession. He hid behind some large funeral wreaths and sobbed uncontrollably. Having lost a number of his close friends over the previous two years, Brahms said to his friend Alvin von Beckeroth, quote, Now I have nobody left to lose. Unquote. Returning from Clara's funeral, Brahms looked unwell, strained, a bit shrunken, and predisposed to weep. His friends at first wrote it off to exhaustion and grief over Clara's death. A yellowish cast to his eyes and skin finally forced Brahms to call on a doctor in late July of 1896, a Dr. Hertika, who diagnosed jaundice and prescribed a strict diet and a rest cure in Carlsbad. In fact, putting Brahms on a diet was like telling a hyena not to gnaw bone. Brahms had hardly been sick a day in his life. He had the healthy person's attitude towards illness as a moral failure. He jokingly dubbed his illness, quote, my petite bourgeois jaundice, unquote. 
Of course, it was more than jaundice. It was cancer of the liver, the same disease that had killed his father. Brahms was not told he was dying, but by the fall of 1896, by October or so, he knew. He joked about his weight loss, saying that he had traded his round Romanesque body for a pointed Gothic one. He studied box scores during the day and continued to go out with his friends at night. Everyone tried to go along with the game, that there was nothing wrong with Johannes. Brahms died slowly. He had more than enough time to burn all of his remaining correspondence, his juvenile compositions, his sketches, drafts, and his unpublished musical manuscripts. This great student of music history, among other things, Brahms was a collector of composers' manuscripts, sketches, and letters did everything he could to wipe out his own paper trail, both personal and musical. The end came just before 9 a.m. on April 3, 1897. Brahms's longtime housekeeper, Frau Celestina Truxa, Brahms had dubbed her his police escort, walked into his room. He tried to sit up and say something, but could not. Quote, Great tears rolled down his face, and he fell back on the pillow. Then, with no struggle, he stopped breathing." Unquote. Postscript Johannes Brahms remains, in many ways, the least known major composer of the last 200 years. For all his extroversion, he rarely revealed much of himself to anyone, much less posterity. He kept no journal or diary or daybook. He gave few interviews and wrote no autobiography or reminiscences. He was a hard man to know, and as an adult, he was a difficult man to get along with. His friend, Louise Jaffa, said that Brahms was, quote, Ser herbel im Thesen, unquote. Very harsh, bitter, acrid in nature. Yes, almost everyone who knew Brahms agreed that underneath his prickly exterior he had that proverbial heart of gold. But in dealing with him on a day-to-day -day basis, one rarely got beneath the surface, and that surface was, much of the time, very harsh, bitter, and acrid in nature. And apparently, that's how Brahms wanted it. If we want to know the real Brahms, the passionate, earthy, delicate, sentimental, lyric-loving, profoundly human Brahms, we must listen to his music. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.